You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this this precious letter that you have gifted your church with, Paul's letter to the Romans. But Father, we thank you for the many blessings we've received as we have studied this letter. And Father, we anticipate blessings even now as we continue in our study. And we praise you in advance for blessings that we'll receive as we continue through this letter, uh, providing your willing to, to tarry and enable us to continue on, Father. So, Lord, we do pray as we study these things, Father, that, Lord, you would enable us to understand them, that, Father, you would be pleased to teach us and to open our hearts, to give us understanding and to open up our, our, our will, Father, our, our will that can be so stubborn and obnoxious towards your truth so much of the time. Father, we confess it before you and ask that, Father, you would be pleased uh, to bless us, Father, that uh, uh, we would be brought increasingly in the pattern of righteousness after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we've made our way through Romans 5, and uh, we've done it two and sometimes three verses at a time, and we found that the, the plowing often is a bit difficult, isn't it? I think that we'll all agree that once we arrived at the message that Paul's getting to, the message is not so bad, is it? When we first get over that, you know, that one part, you know, in, in Romans 5 and verse 12, uh, Paul, as I've, as I've said, he's, he's pointing to an historical event that has taken place. And you'll remember, I, I, I kind of likened it in some respects in miniature to 9-11, I mean, how many can remember where they were on 9-11? If you raise your hand, you can remember where you were, you can remember what you were doing, and uh, most of us are old enough to remember what life was like before 9-11 because it was really different than it is now, isn't it? And there is an event that has taken place. It's an historical event Something took place on that day that has left lasting change. And Paul is pointing not only to one historical event here, he's pointing to two historical events. The first is Adam's rebellion in the garden. He says, just verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is through Adam, so death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And you remember that I've given you the structure of all of this so we can kind of see the outline of this. 
For me, I like to have diagrams. I like to have outlines. It helps me understand things when I can diagram sentences, when I can diagram paragraphs, when I can say, okay, the purpose of this point is here. The purpose of this point is here. The purpose of this point is here. It makes it easier for me not only to understand, but it makes it easier for me to remember it. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that many of us are the same way. And I brought to your attention verses 13 and 14 are given to expand on what Paul says, namely with the word, the words uh, spread to all men. It's easy to look at a verse like this and say, okay, well, Adam rebelled and uh, we've been rebelling ever since because we have been following after the pattern of Adam. But I've been making it clear, saying this almost in every message. Maybe some of you are getting tired of hearing it, but I don't think we can hear this too much. But what Paul is saying here is an historical event took place in the Garden of Eden that has had a lasting effect that lasts even till to this day. A tragic, a tragic event has taken place that has brought all of us down into uh, sin, death, and misery. Now, I've been speaking to some of you here uh, about some of the struggles that you're having right now. Uh, incredible struggles. Why is that happening? Well, on a grand scale, we can say that it is happening because of this event that took place in the Garden of Eden. When Adam fell, all humanity fell with him. And that's the part that, that in the West here we have trouble with because we say, wait a second, I wasn't in the Garden. How can I be... How can I be called guilty when I wasn't even, I never even seen the Garden of Eden. I had nothing to do with eating that fruit from that forbidden tree. How can it be that I am guilty? Well, this is, this is God's, this is God's uh, judgment. He declared all humanity guilty when our representative, Adam, fell into the garden. And all of us have been born with this guilt. And we prove it every time we sin. We don't sin because, you know, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. There's a big difference between those two statements. And that's the problem, you see. That's the problem. But Paul, in verse uh, 14, after having shared this about Adam, he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam is a type of Christ, and we find that as almost a shocking statement to be said. Now, some of us have heard this all of our lives practically, so we've, the shock factor is lost, but I think we recover somewhat of the shock factor when we look at Adam's performance and how his performance has brought death, misery, and, and uh, into this world, sin, death, and misery. And then all of a sudden, Paul says, well, listen, you know, Adam, he's a type of, he's a type of Christ. And we say, what? Now, that's why we have verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul says, now, wait a second. All right, Adam is a type of Christ, but he's not like him in every way. And, the, and you'll notice I pointed out to you, is not like. See the phrase in verse 15? The free gift is not like. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like. It's almost like, oh, having just said this, uh, you know, having just said, you know, when, when Adam falls, everyone falls with him. And Paul says, well, I better qualify that. That's verses 13 and 14. And then he says, well, Adam's a type of Christ. Well, I better qualify this. Verses 15, 16, and 17. He points to the free gift. What is the free gift? I developed that several weeks ago, that the free gift 
is the work of Christ. It's his perfect life. And it's good for us to meditate on that, especially whenever we're confessing our sins or when we've discovered that we've sinned. We can confess our sins to God and we can confess them freely and we can enjoy forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. Imagine that. In thought, word, and deed, he never fell even in the slightest. Isn't that incredible? And then what did he do with that life? That perfect life, the free gift. It's a free gift. He goes to the cross with that perfect life. For what purpose? To die in the place of sinners like you and me. But it even gets better. The free gift even gets better. He doesn't do this just so that our, our slates could be wiped clean and we can start over again. That wouldn't be good news because in 10 minutes, our slates are going to be a mess again, aren't they? We sin in ways we're not even aware of. We're not even aware of how we sin. But we're aware of enough to know that I don't think we could make it 10 minutes or 15. Now, some of you might be saying, Rick, speak for yourself. Okay, I'll speak for myself. I'll give you 20 minutes then. That's a long time. To not sin in thought, word, or deed. It's a long time for our pride not to exercise itself in some manifestation. That's a long time. That's how bad it is. But the free gift, the free gift, Christ, perfection, his perfection. He goes to the cross to take away all the sins. He takes the penalty for them. God is not so unjust that he's going to punish Jesus and then turn around and punish us too. No, all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, those sins are gone. They're taken away. But God, the free gift is even greater than that. But that perfect life of Jesus ends up getting, it gets imputed, if you will, or uh, uh, in, in, in this respect, transferred, if you will, to our account. So that when God would look at us, he would see the very perfection of his son. So you see, the free gift is not like the trespass. And then in verses 18 and 19, Paul says, therefore, one trespass led to condemnation, right? One historical event that took place in the Garden of Eden has led to this mess. Condemnation, sin has entered the world. Death through sin, misery. So that, so one act of righteousness, here's another historical event, namely Christ's coming in, uh, God entering into space, time, and history in the person of Christ, living the perfect life, being crucified on the cross in place of sinners, being raised on the third day, ascending to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This has brought justification and life for all, for all who put their faith and trust in God. For as by, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And you remember, I, I, I exercise, I, I, I counsel you with caution on verse 19. We can, we can really fall down on verse 19 if we're not careful. Notice what it says. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We need to understand this in a forensic sense. 
It's important that we understand this in a forensic sense if we're going to fall down on this verse. If we don't understand it in a forensic sense, it won't stand up to the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. What do I mean by a forensic sense? Think about forensic science. Think about all of the TV shows that are on, on right now where, you, you know, there's a crime scene and then the guys, you know, with the jackets and the little suitcases show up, you know, and they've got all these things in their little suitcase and they start collecting forensic evidence. What is forensic evidence? It's evidence. It's science that's going to be used for the express purpose of a courtroom, for, of a trial, to either uh, prove someone's innocence or prove somebody guilty. Now, I think this illustration helps us understand as well. Let's suppose that uh, I am on trial for something and I'm in the dock and the prosecuting attorney comes into, into the courtroom, makes his or her case that I am guilty, makes his or her case to the jury. And then my defense makes his or her case that I am not guilty. The jury then hears both sides, right? And they make a decision. They give their decision to the judge. Does the judge make me innocent or guilty? No. He merely proclaims or declares, if you will, based on the evidence that's been heard, whether I am already guilty or innocent. You see, what is God doing? We say, this business about falling at Adam in the garden, I wasn't even there. Well, no, we've been declared guilty because our representative fell in the garden. We have been declared by God guilty. And we'll say, well, that's not fair. Well, wait a second. You weren't in the garden of Gethsemane either. Jesus was there all by himself. Even his closest companions, they fell asleep. And how many of us hung on the cross with Jesus? As we're going to see, this gets kind of confusing. We're going to see all of us were in one sense, but that's for another day. But for this argument right now, based on a simple faith in Christ Jesus, God declares us not guilty. That's how we have to understand verse 19. It's a declaration. We have to understand it forensically. Is everybody okay with that? Now, this brings us up to where we were last week. And last week, you remember, because when we read this, Westerners, when we read this, we get to verse 20 and we think, what's verse 20 doing here? I mean, Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but we're, we're the law, what? You, you, we can kind of scratch our heads, you know? But if you went up on Murray Avenue in Squirrel Hill, um, the, our, our Jewish friends up there wouldn't be scratching their heads at all. Our Jewish friends have this concern as they're listening to this all along. They're, uh, they're ready to chime in and say, hey, um, Paul, what about Moses? What about the law? You're giving us Adam. Never quite understood it that way, but okay. And you're giving us Christ. Okay. But you're skipping a lot of material, Paul. You're saying this whole thing is about Adam and Christ and there's nothing in between. What about Moses? What about the law? Paul, do you, when you read your Bible, do you read the Genesis 3 and then skip to Matthew? Is that what you do? Well, these are the kind of concerns that, that folks... Uh, would have if your if your ethnic identity uh, was very tied to the Mosaic law, you're going to be wondering what in the world we're skipping the law here. Now Paul knows this, and Paul says, "Listen, now the law—it's on your minds, 
Remember, he's writing to Gentiles and Jews. And his Jewish audience, he says, now listen, I know what's on your minds here. This thing in the law is on your minds. Now, wait a second. And then he says something that would be, if we were Orthodox Jews in this day, I don't know that this would be like nails down the chalkboard. He says that the law has come in to increase the trespass. Oh, that's not why, that's not how we think about the law. Okay, okay, Paul, what you're saying is the law has come in to make us worse? Haven't you ever read Psalm 19 and verse 7, Paul? You know what, Paul? Just listen for a minute. Because, listen, Paul, you need to sit down for a second and you need to listen. I want to share with you a couple verses, Paul. You need to sit down and listen because Psalm 19 and verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Right? And Paul, you need to listen to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, Paul, have you forgotten Psalm 119? Uh, for example, verse uh, Psalm 19, verse 7. Um, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Or uh, uh, not, verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Paul, have you never read that? And of course, what is Paul saying about that? Paul has been arguing for chapters 1, 2, and 3 that uh, through works, there is no salvation, is there? But many of those in his Jewish audience believe that the law has been given to impart life. It's been given to impart life. What is Paul saying? He's saying the law cannot impart life. All that the law will do is condemn. When the law is given to sinners, what happens? I love to use the example of that piano that was down in the hallway. Some of us aren't going to know what I'm talking about. But once upon a time, we met in the room that was directly under this room. And in the hallway, there was this piano. I think there's only a couple of us that would remember this piano. But you'll get the illustration. Because the piano sat there, no one paid any attention to it. Until one day, someone put a sign on the piano that said, do not touch, or said something like that. And I thought, oh, when, it, when I saw that sign on that piano, I thought, oh, thank you. Whoever put that sign on that piano, boy, did you give me an illustration. I'm going to use this thing. I'm, I'm always going to use it. Because you know what? As soon as I saw that sign, I knew what I was going to do. No one would pay any attention to that piano until you put a sign on it that says, don't touch it. Now, you got these, you got these eight fingers and these two thumbs, and you ain't going to be able to keep them off that piano because there's a sign telling you not to do it. That's what the law does to sin. And when we break the law, we're even more culpable because we've been told not to. I use the example of kids, you know, when we're kids, you know, we get curious about something we don't think we should do, and we go do it, that gets us in trouble. But when we're curious about something we've been told explicitly not to do and we go do it, that gets us in more trouble, doesn't it? So what is going to be the effect of the law as it comes to us? It's going to make us worse. It's going to increase our, it's going to increase our guilt. But Paul says, listen, where sin increased, which it certainly did, grace abounded all the more. And my message last week was, listen, God's grace is greater than our sin. 
And, and I repeat that this morning because it's such an important message that we have to have. Because when we have sinned and we know we have sinned, we can sometimes fall so low on the floor that we think it's over. God's not going to want to talk with us. He's not going to want to mess with us now. Look how bad we've blown it. Listen, we need to understand something. God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than all of our sins all put together. And this needs to be preached from the mountaintops. Now, the problem with this is people will listen to this and they'll say, okay, all right, where sin increased, grace abounds. Where sin increased, God's grace becomes greater. Well, if you preach something like that, Nobody's going to obey the law. Who's going to obey the law if you preach that? That sounds like easy believism. And of course, if you back up, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 8, what does Paul say? He says, why not do evil that good may come? You notice he slips that in there. As some have slanderously charged us as saying. You see, Paul's already heard from opponents that say, listen, this gospel of yours, Paul, you go preaching that stuff, no one's going to obey the law. No one's going to do it. And what are you suggesting? Should we all go running around sinning so that we could, so that we could uh, enjoy the forgiveness of God more acutely? Is that what you're saying? Now, some of you know, because I've shared with you, when I preached my presbytery sermon, I preached my presbytery sermon on Romans 6. And one of the points that I made in that Presbytery sermon is if no one is accusing you of this, if you're never getting accused of this, you're probably most likely not preaching the gospel. If no one has accused you of preaching this, what we're going to call antinomianism, I'll explain it in a few minutes. You're, pro- you're, you're most likely, I would say 99.99, not preaching the gospel. Unless you just haven't been doing it very much. You start, if you're just doing it a little bit, you might not get accused of this, but if you're doing it a lot, if you're pretty active with your faith, somewhere along the line, someone's just saying, that just sounds like, that just sounds like easy believism. Well, that's what Paul is being charged with. And what's Paul's response here? What does he say? What shall we say then? Verse one of chapter six. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, what's Paul doing here? He is anticipating the objections that are going to be on the mind of his readers. He knows that there's a certain group of people that are going to read this and say, Paul, if you preach this stuff, no one is going to obey the law. Everyone's going to become lawless. And people are going to do evil so that... uh, they might see the forgiveness of God exercised more and more and more. Paul realizes that. When the gospel was recovered at the Reformation, the reformers were concerned about this. And they were accused of the same thing. They were accused of the same thing. And that's why the reformers phrased, they coined this phrase, that we're saved by faith. Okay, everybody agrees with that, Paul. If you say, we're saved by faith, everyone's agreeing with that. But they added something to that that not everybody agrees with. And it's infidelity with the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul's teaching. 
We're saved by faith alone. The word alone is the word that caused lots of problems. Because people heard that and said, if you go around teaching that we're saved by faith alone, you go around and tell people, listen, no matter how bad your sin's in, God's grace is greater than your sin. Then they're going to think that, uh, well, they might as well just keep on living in wickedness and evil because God's grace is greater than our sin, right? That's why the reformers added something to it. We're saved by faith alone, but by a faith that's not alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, what Paul is touching on here and what's going on here is the potential for antinomianism. How many have heard of that word before, antinomianism? Okay, what does that mean? It's one of them words where you, okay, what's this mean? Well, I'm going to look it up one of these days and you forget. Then you see it again. I'm going to look it up and then you forget. Well, what does it mean? Anti, I think we all know what that means. It means against. And nomianism comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. And it means against the law. Against the law. Uh, It's this idea that you'll hear. You'll hear it a lot. Where people will say, uh, rightfully, Paul will tell us as we continue studying Romans 6 and study Romans 7, he'll say, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And people will say, that's wonderful. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. So we live however we want. That's antinomianism. We just do whatever we want. God forgive us. That's a spirit that does not understand the gospel. That does not understand the gospel. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to stop midstream in verse 2 is because I think we need to take a few minutes and we need to try to sort out the law and the gospel. Now, <laughs> you know, as I thought about saying that to you, I, I, I laugh because it takes a... I'm not sure that we completely get this sorted out in our lifetime. It really is a razor's edge that we have to walk here. Uh, but I, uh, let's, let me introduce it. And for some of you, it's something you're wrestling with and you've had... Yeah, you know, you're, you're wrestling with it in your life. I think it's easy enough to understand, but to put it into practice is a real razor's edge. Wait, let's ask the question. Let's join our Jewish friends and ask the question, Paul, what, okay, what's up with the law? You say the law has been given to increase sin. Okay. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, uh, was very famous for, in his institutes, of instituting what we hear sometimes as the Uh, Three uses of the law. How many have heard of that? Three uses of the law. Nobody? Three uses? Oh, cool. This is going to be fun. No one's heard of it. I love it. Well, you're going to hear about it now. Three uses of the law. The first use of the law is what Paul's been arguing in Romans. The first use of the law. What is the first use of the law? Well, the first use of the law is to teach us that we're sinners. You remember last week I took a leaf out of my own personal testimony to tell you that when I first started studying the Bible, I I started to study the law. I started to study the scriptures. I started to study, you know, you get through uh, Genesis as you're reading through the Bible. You get to Exodus, you get to the Ten Commandments. And I thought, boy, this is uh, Ten Commandments. We got Ten Commandments. I've kept them all but two. Or I'm sorry, I've I've failed all of them but two. There's two that that I think I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, but then when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly discover, well, wait a second, about those two you think you're okay on? 
um, eh, not so good. What is the law doing? The law is teaching us that we're sinners. If you look at Romans 3.20, Paul's already done that. Paul said in Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? What's it say? Knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Nobody would come along and, you know, listen, uh, thou shalt not murder. I thought I was good on that one. I've never taken anyone's life. I thought I was good on that. Oh, until Jesus expounded on it in the Sermon on the Mount, said, listen, if you've been mad at your brother, you know, a certain anger that you'd like to have strangled him in your heart, you committed murder spiritually. Okay, what did that just do to me? What did it just do to you? It's just told you you're a murderer. It's just told me I'm a murderer. Here comes the knowledge of sin. And the first use of the law is to reveal our knowledge of sin so that we will see that we can't stand in God's court. At the end of this life, we're going to have to give an account for our lives in God's court. And most people believe that we're going to get judged by a curve there. No, we're not. That would be unjust of God to judge us by a curve there. Most of us will say, well, you know, God knows I'm not perfect. He knows that I can't possibly stand in his court. He's going to judge me by a curve. No, he's not. Why is he not going to do it? Because he's given us something better than a curve. He's given us a savior. You don't need a curve. You've got a savior. God is going to judge each one of us against the perfect standard of his holiness and justice. And we're murderers. And the first use of the law is to teach us that we're murderers. We can't stand. In other words, the first use of the law is to lead us to the fact, to convince us of the fact that we need a savior. That's the first use of the law. That's why it's so loving for God to give us a law. Why would want to give us why would God want to give us a law where trespasses would increase? Because he's going to give us a savior. He wants us to know we need the savior. It's very loving. It's very merciful for him to do this. Second use of the law is to restrain evil. Uh, my favorite example of this is uh, my ministry at Columbiana County Jail. Uh, this is my favorite illustration. You know, I I came to do ministry at Columbiana County Jail because once upon a time a woman came to me who I didn't know this woman. I didn't I don't even think I'd met her before. And she asked me if I would go to the jail and meet with her son who I had never met before. Uh, well, as awkward as that sounded to me, I, I couldn't tell her no. I said, well, I mean, he doesn't know me. I've not earned any kind of place in his life to be any kind of He's, he's not reached out to me for advice or counsel or anything, but if they'll let me talk to him, I'll go talk to him. So I drove out there and explained to explained to the facility who I was and asked if I could see this fellow. They, they put me in this room and let, let me talk to him. Now, what I didn't realize was they were listening to everything I said. I didn't know that. I didn't know they were listening to everything I said. Um, I spoke with them for probably 45 minutes as a memory serves me. And uh, on the way out, one of the officers stopped me in the, uh, uh, in the lobby area and he said, hey, uh, would you be interested in coming back out here? And at, 
that initial thought to me, as busy as I was then, was like, wow, I, you know, uh, all them buzzers. You know, if you've ever been around it, you hear this, you hear them doors opening and closing, and I'm like, man, I, don't know. I really didn't even want to come back to that place ever, to be honest with you. And I was like, oh, you know, I got so much going on. He goes, no, 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 would you come back? I, at this point, I didn't know that they were listening to me. About, um, I don't know, it was a couple weeks later, uh, this particular officer actually came and sought me out in the community. Uh, he actually came to the house. And he said, listen, would you consider coming to, uh, would you consider coming and doing services? I said, I don't, you know, again, I was kind of trying to get out of it. But then he said this to me. He said, we want the gospel shared. And I thought, oh, boy, this isn't every day you hear this. I said, you know something? Okay, how about every other week? He goes, we'll take you once a month if you'll come once a month. So I went out there every other week for three years. It was about three years. Every other week I went out and did three services at the facility. And this same officer took very careful notes of what was taking place in those services. After we were out there about six months, he came to me with all this paperwork. He said, listen, I want to show you something. These, these are the people who have regularly attended the services. I forget what the criteria was for regular attendance, but he had criteria for that. This is the behavior of those who regularly attend your services before they started attending your services. And this is their behavior since they've been attending your services. Radical change in behavior of these men and women. Uh, and he wanted to show that to me. It was a great encouragement to me. Now, let me share this with you. Do I think that these men and women had come to faith at that point? No. I think there was a few of them that were coming under conviction at the end of the day. I don't know the heart of another person. It's hard enough to try to understand your own heart than alone somebody else's. But the second use of the law is to restrain evil. What was I giving them? I was giving them the law, the bad news of the gospel, so that I could give them the good news of the gospel. You see, the first use of the law is to teach us that we need Jesus. That's what I was going in there doing. I didn't harbor on that a lot because they realized they had records. I'd point at their records. Listen, we all have a record. I would identify with them and say, listen, I have a record too. You want to know something? I'm a convict too. I can't stand in God's court any better than any of you. That was shocking to them. They were shocked to hear that. I said, I need a savior as bad as you need a savior. That's the first use of the law. Second use of the law is to restrain, is to restrain evil. As we take the law down off the courthouse walls, are we becoming more lawful? My heavens, no. We're as lawless as the societies we've ever, maybe as we've ever been. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't have a PhD in American history. I know the Wild West is the Wild West for a reason, but it's looking a lot like the Wild West. At least I've never was alive during the Wild West, but I've seen the movies and you've seen the movies. It's starting to look like the movies, isn't it? Second use of the law is to restrain evil. 
What is the third use of the law? And this is really important. The third use of the law is to guide us in how we're to live in righteousness after we've come to Jesus. So when someone hears the gospel, the gospel gives us the bad news. If you're sharing the gospel, you're telling people the bad news. You're doing it lovely, lovingly, hopefully, but you're telling them the bad news. You're going through the commandments. You're going through however you want to do it, but you're giving them the bad news. To, to just go and tell somebody, listen, Jesus loves you and he wants to, he's a wonderful plan for you. That's not the gospel. If that's what you're sharing, that is not the gospel. People will hear that and say, well, you know, thank you. I'm glad it works for you. But, you know, if we could bring health care costs down a little bit and I could get a little raise, I'd be just fine with that. That sounds great to me. And if this works for you. That's great. That's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could have a wonderful plan for our life. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is that we, we, we have rebelled against God. The bad news of the gospel, we've rebelled in all of these ways. We need a savior. And the third use of the law is to show us how we're to live after we've embraced Christ Jesus. Are we to go on sinning that grace may abound? How does Paul answer that? We say in our translation, by no means. But you know that in the Greek, magnoita is the word. Magnoita, two words. If we were Greek-speaking people and the sermon was starting to get boring and you're starting to check out a little bit and you're kind of starting to do this a little bit, and it's okay because I do that when I listen to sermons too. Your mind kind of goes over here and over there. You look out the window and all of a sudden you hear, Maganoita. You'd be looking forward because it's such a strong statement. Paul is making such a strong statement. He's saying by no means. A good translation, it would be a paraphrase. Because theos isn't there. It's magnoita. It's not theos. But if we said, God forbid, that would be a very good uh, paraphrase that would say it's a wake-up call. God forbid. If that's what you're getting out of the gospel, you're missing the gospel. You need a savior. And look what it has taken to save you. God had to come in the person of Christ Jesus, live that perfect life down here in the realm of sin, death, and misery. And he suffered. He suffered before he ever went to the cross. We don't think about that much, but he suffered in poverty before he ever went to the cross. Then he goes to the cross. He suffers on the cross in an unimaginable uh, death. Succumbs to death. The precious one of God laid in a tomb, third day, rises from the dead so that he can offer salvation to us. And then we're going to, in response to them, say, hey, shall we keep on sinning? That's a heart that has not been moved one iota. In fact, that's a heart that's been hardened by the gospel, not a heart that's been softened by the gospel. Does that make sense? The Bible uses language, mortify, strive, put off, put on. It uses language. This is language. After, this isn't language we give to someone who hasn't come to Christ. We don't tell them they can't. To the person who hasn't come to Christ, we encourage them to come to Christ. 
We encourage them that, that they need a Savior. We, we, we use our testimony, use whatever it takes to try to encourage them to come to Christ. But once one has come to Christ, well, their language is mortify, strive, put off, put on. Romans 8, 13, put to death the deeds of the body. Matthew 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And so the list goes on. You'll find it all over the New Testament. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God forbid. God forbid. If that's our attitude, if that's our heart, well, then the gospel has hardened us. The gospel has hardened us. Amen? It's probably a good place to stop. Let's let me say this. The psalmist in Psalm 119 in verse 97 says this. Oh, how I love your law. And that's the disposition of the one who has come to faith in Christ. Oh, this, would, we, would we go on violating this law so the grace? No, how can I do that? Because I absolutely love the law. Why do I love the law? Because Christ has given me a new heart. He's given me a new spirit. Now I strive to want to follow him. Does that make sense? Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Father. And we ask, Father, that, Lord, you'd be pleased to increase our love, Father, uh, for your law. We, we don't obey obey your law that we may uh, gain any favor or gain any merit from you father for we know that uh, our obedience will do no such thing but father as we look to the law we see that it is in it an opportunity to not only uh, imitate you and to imitate christ but to do that which is pleasing in your sight and to do that uh, which uh, is the only suitable response uh, in thanksgiving for what you've done for us, Father. So help us, O oh Father, to understand these things. Help us, Father, to learn these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.